My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. It is excellent to have you all here with me on, as we're continuing through the book of Luke. We are almost over almost done with the book of Luke and yet it still has plenty more to reveal to us we haven't even gotten to yeah, Jesus on the cross and like I said just plenty more to discern here plenty more to get out I hope you've all been enjoying this uh, I have noticed that the viewership is picking up a little bit so I'm very happy to hear that uh, especially there's at least a couple of you out there who are listening to uh, multiple episodes in a single day so to catch up, I imagine. So thank you. Welcome to the team. Glad to have you here. So with all that said, um, I think we're just going to get into it. So we'll be starting in the book of Luke today in chapter 17. We'll be in verses one through four. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So let's start from the top, people. Temptations are inevitable in life. Inevitable. There is no way possible outside of being in a coma for you to avoid temptations. You know why? Because your conscious mind is aware of what's going on. And as if your conscious mind is aware, well, even with Jesus in us, we still have predilections towards sin. We're going to go that way. We're going to get what we want, what we think we deserve, rather than what God desires of us. Like even complete separation from the world would still allow us the opportunity to sin against ourselves, against nature, and against God himself. We are in a daily fight against every single temptation around us, so we have to stay on guard, not only for our sakes, but for the sake of others as well. Look, as it brings up here, we are all accountable for our actions, especially if what we do tempts someone else to sin they are to blame for sinning. Yes, no way around that. But we, likewise, are to blame for allowing the situation to occur that leads them into sin. But whatever scenario you have, don't lead them into sin. Don't say, hey, no one's watching. Don't say, hey, it's okay. Like, I know you're wrestling with this, but you can handle this right now. It's like, don't be the one who makes things worse for that person because it's already hard enough on its own without someone coming alongside and saying, oh, you'll be fine. Now, look, do you have a friend that struggles with lust? Don't invite them over to watch something that may trigger this temptation. Could be anything. If you know, oh, that's where their mind is going to go, don't ask them over. It's not because they're not as good a Christian as you are. It's because there are things in their lives they're struggling with that they're not able to control as readily as you are. Do you, is there a family member who's gone down a darker political path in your life? Insert political affiliation here. Like, and you recognize that that's not healthy for them to do so. Don't mock them for it. Thanksgiving dinner, don't mock them for it. But instead, ask questions. 
and get them to attempt to see why their new way of thinking doesn't match up with truth and scripture. Lest they double down with what they believe because of the bullying and mockery they receive from you, that's going to make them join the wrong side of things. So again, it doesn't matter which dark side of the political affiliation they go for, as I you know, should have <laughs> silenced my phone there. My bad. <laughs> but anyways, like it doesn't matter right, left, central, whatever. If they're going down a dark side of a political affiliation, don't just say they're just like the rest of them. Those idiots, that's all they think. It's like, no, that's still a human being. That's still family. That's still someone you need to look after and love and say, hey, you know, why do you think that way? Well, you think that, but this is what Jesus has to say about it. And you know what? They may not listen, but you did your job. Look, our words and our action, uh, <laughs> our actions, I'm uh, keeping that in. Keep that in, Josh. Uh, our actions matter immensely. And if we use them to harm those around us, like Jesus' example here, it would be better for us to drown in the sea with a heavy stone tied around our necks than to continue existing and harming others. That's not an easy thing to say. That doesn't sound like a positive thing to say. But Jesus' point is like, look, you are not helping. It would be better if you were gone completely. That is how deeply Jesus feels about the sins we lead others into. Don't disappoint him. Moving on to verse 3, we see... This is the one verse that no one ever brings up when the topic of judging others is brought up. You know, like uh, Luke 6, uh, 37 and Matthew 7, 1 are. It's like, oh, judge not lest you be judged. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, it says that, but did you read the rest of it? Have you read further scripture that says how you can judge? No, because you only focus on this because you don't want me to call you out. No one worldly likes talking about the power of being able to judge someone unless that person doesn't fit in with their, the world's standards of doing things. I mean, you only have to do is look around. You can go on Twitter. You can go on Reddit, even with the blackout. That's happening right now. You can go, you can go to MSNBC, you go to Fox News, wherever. You're going to see the world calling people out for not getting in line with what they want. We, as Christians, should never fall into this trap either. It's the world's double standard. And if we fall into it, we're just as bad. There is a way to judge others in loving rebuke. This is what Jesus is bringing up here. Recall that first we must work on the sin in our own lives first. And then after we've done that, we can then seek out others to aid them in their times of rebellion. Our goal is never to make the other person feel lesser or unworthy of God's love, but to always seek after their spiritual welfare and to offer them correction so that they can't deny that what they're doing to themselves is harmful and unworthy of their time and devotion so that they may either find God for the first time or come back to the flock. It's that simple. That's why we're given the power to judge, because we want these people to come back or to find God for the first time and see, oh, no, I've been living a lie. I have been hurting myself by doing the things I thought were good. Like, no one wants to be doing harmful things to themselves, but yet we do it every day because we think they're good for us. And sometimes what we need is someone to go, you're doing it wrong. This is how things are done correctly, not out of a sense of I'm better than you, not out of a sense of, well, if I call them out, no one is going to see what I'm doing behind the scenes. But because we genuinely love these people, we want them to be better than themselves. We reach out to them and we call them out for sin, dealing with their own sin, wrestling with that, bringing it up before God. If we can do that, well, maybe they can, too. I'll continue in the verse four there. Uh, what Jesus is not saying in this verse 
is this idea that somehow propped up, especially in modern times, that people have heretically just kind of added to scripture and that we should all just forgive and forget. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Nowhere in scripture is this idea ever presented, and it is immensely harmful for anyone to teach it as if it was. Like, look, I get the spirit behind it. It's like, oh, well, forgive and forget. Ah, she hurt me, but we're friends now. It's like, no, that's not how this works. You don't hold it over them, mind you, but you don't forget. Nowhere does Jesus ever say, hey, you know, the Pharisees, man, they're going to, and the Romans and the people of Israel, they're going to put me up on the cross. <laughs> and I go, ah, you, you scamps, you, you, you murdered me. Good job. And then he forgot about it. I'm like, no, there was punishment for those who didn't repent of their sins. That's not how these things work. He didn't just say, well, all that they, he did say they don't know what they're doing, but then he, he didn't say, so father, like a, it's like, ah, it's no big deal. It's like, no, that's not how this works at all. Don't be fooled. However, as some would later take, would take this first into thinking this means we never forgive someone who's harmed us. If we know they're going to do it again, they look, Jesus says, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't say, forgive them. I'm going to forget about it after I come back. He said, they don't really get it. Forgive them. Even when he's dying, he asks for forgiveness for these people. We should do the same. Look, their intentions don't matter when it comes to our call to forgive them for what they've done. That Jesus says, forgive them, even if it's seven times. Forgive them. That doesn't mean if suddenly it's eight or it's 70 times seven, uh, 490. You got 491st? Well, I don't have to forgive you anymore. Not the point. When they ask for forgiveness, we forgive them. Christ's command is to get us to forgive them because that may be what they need in that moment in time. What he is not saying is that we pretend like it never happened and move on with our lives. That's not healthy. That's not good. Like I said earlier, we don't hold this person's past sins over their heads, but we should be shrewd with them and realize that if they hurt us or others one way before, they're perfectly capable of doing it again, especially if they think they can take advantage of us and our mercy towards them. That's why forgive and forget should never be a thing. You know why? Because people will always take advantage of that person if they don't forgive correctly. It's like, oh, oh well, you kept taking money out of my wages, boss. Yeah, but next time, next month, you won't do that. And I do it again. Oh, I forgive you. It's like, no, that's not how this works. It's like, oh, well... You stole something from me. You broke down my fence. So what have you? Oh, you scallywag you. Like, no, forgive them, but make sure there are repercussions for that sin. We need to call out the person who steals wages from someone. We need to call out the person who vandalizes the things we own. What have you? Whatever the example is, if they've done wrong, our forgiveness is, well, let's pretend like it never happened. That's not healthy because they've learned nothing from the experience. There are consequences for sin. That does not mean we seek immense retribution against them to say, okay, now I'll make sure you never do anything else again in your life. No, we seek to correct out of love, not out of revenge. Yet, even knowing this, this whole, they're going to do it again to us, because guess what? People are people. You're going to do it again to someone else too, by the way. We must forgive them. Hopefully, setting them up to wonder why someone is capable of doing that to them despite their many sins. So forgive, do not forget, do not hold over, do not make them feel less important. Love them. 
Love sometimes is correction. No one likes hearing that. Guess what? Needs to be done. From children all the way to the oldest senior citizen around. Next up, verses 5 through 6. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, once again, let's get to what this verse is not. <laughs> this is not Jesus saying, hey, if you wish it, you're going to have those superpowers you always wanted, Christian. You can control time. You can have telekinesis. Uh, you can fly. No, that's, if if I just had enough faith, Lord, like I can just uh, uh, jump out this window and I'll fly. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. Never let anyone tell you that. That is very unhelpful for your spiritual walk. But what he is saying is that faith is something that grows over time. Most of us, when we were baby Christians, uh, whether you were six like I was or 42 or 75 or whatever, we felt like we could take on the world and never stop to wonder if that was even possible. That's a childlike faith. That's a wondrous thing. But along the way, life slowly seeped into our thoughts and our passions, and it made us weaken our faith in some areas. Some people have never received that. And it just kept going. And it, uh, marvels. I marveled at someone who can do something like that. And it's going to happen eventually. Eventually down the road, it's going to happen. So when it does, we need to be prepared. This is natural. This inability to keep our faith in the highs is natural because life is what it is. Bad things are going to happen. We're going to lose a job. We're going to lose a family member or a friend or someone's going to betray us or we're not going to have enough money to afford that thing we really need to. Like, that's how life goes. But this doesn't make you or I or me or have the heck the English is for that because I forget my rules <laughs> in the heat of the moment. It doesn't make us a failure, but it should sober us up knowing that every mountain we climb up, eventually we end up in the valleys, sometimes through no fault of our own. Sometimes it's a direct result of our sin and God is punishing us. Sometimes it's because we live in a sin sick world. And bad things happen because God is allowing them to so that people have time to repent. Regardless, sometimes, excuse me, all the time, we need to be ready for when this happens. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And to his example here in these verses, if a tiny little pathetic looking thing like a mustard seed can grow into a nine foot tall plant, then we and our weakness can do greater things than a non-sapient plant could ever do if we place our trust in Jesus, have you ever seen a mustard seed? I, I was re-looking through the examples today. They are, like I said, tiny and pathetic. This thing is never going to amount to anything. And yet you look at what it produces. Nine feet tall. I, I was talking about the biggest. I, I, I was doing my research earlier. From this little speck all the way to something that towers over a human being. That's exactly what we can do in our own faith. We start with next to nothing, and move on to something that makes everything that happened in the past look like nothing. Looks like we always had it together. Looks like we are on fire for him and getting things done right. Eventually, we're going to lose our way because we're human. But still, think about where you are compared to where you were. And if there's no growth at all, that's something I would consider uh, discussing with people around you. Like, how can I grow? What can I do? Should I be serving somewhere? Should I be helping somewhere? Should I you know, be focusing and reading on scripture more often or praying more often? Do that. And it's amazing the tiny things God produces, that quiet time, or talking to that one person who can help you through these issues. And in seeing where you can go from there, 
you're a completely different person. And that's exactly how he intended it to go. Remember where this gospel starts. I mean, there's about uh, post-resurrection is about 500 people before Pentecost who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 500, okay? But look at where Christianity is today, where it spread almost the entire world. 500 people, potentially billions of people, depending on how many of those who actually take those polls actually believe in who Jesus is. This is precisely what having the faith of a mustard seed can do for us and the world as well. 500, the entire globe, pretty much. Less than 2,000 years for that to happen. It's astounding. Uh, Next up, verses 7 through 10. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's another one that gets twisted. Jesus's point here is not that we will never receive recognition for our actions undertaken in his name on this earth, but you know, rather uh, it is that we should do not do these things for the sake of receiving accolades and praises for our presumed righteousness. There is nothing wrong with rightfully being called out like in this, this wondrous joy for the good things that we do for him in the kingdom. But there is always something wrong with the Christian who demands to be recognized for the sake of their ego or their status. The, the servant is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. It'd be like, you know, I talked to someone and they did the exact same thing. I taught them to do every single day. Like if I praise them every single day for that thing they're, they're doing, like, does it actually mean anything? No, they're doing what they're, to- they're supposed to do. I shouldn't be praising them for that. But if I say, you know, later on, hey, uh, you've been doing this thing I say consistently, good job. That makes me not only a a good leader, but helps them know like, hey, I'm being recognized for my efforts. But that's not the point he's trying to make here. It's like, we're not doing this for recognition, but that is a good way how you can handle the people under your authority, by the way. But what he's saying is like, we don't receive acclaim for the sake of ourselves. We do it because it's what he taught us to do. It is the right thing to do. Our hearts should always be humble when he commands us to act so that we never lose sight of why we do what we do because it should never be for our own pride. And I say that to you and I say that to me, one of the biggest egotists on the planet, thinking that I'm so righteous, I'm doing all these things. Look at me, God. Look at me, God, versus the person who's not doing that. Someone who's doing it because it's the right thing to do because that's what God has asked him to do. Not for accolades, not for special permission, not to just gain some extra special jewel on one of their crowns in heavens, in heaven, but because it's what God commanded us to do. That is what we do. Uh, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give great uh, praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. 
Notice specifically at the start of this, Jesus chose to walk through Samaria again. He didn't go to a neglected region of the world once to make himself look great, uh, to have a bunch of paparazzi around, uh, taking photos so they all look at me, I'm helping, helping the refugees, I'm helping the homeless. No, he continued going there because there were people in need of a savior, and he wanted to set an example to his disciples and us on how we should act once he was gone. He didn't ignore them. He didn't talk to the woman at the well in John 4 and say, well, that's uh, my good duty uh, for the day for Samaria. Uh, Maybe I'll come back if I really want to. No, there were people there who needed him. So he came back knowing this moment was going to happen in time. There are far too many people out there who will speak of the neglected and marginalized and then do nothing to help them. Just saying empty words. Look, this world is a terrible place. It's a broken place. It's a sinful place. Anyone who says otherwise is just not paying attention. I I don't know what to tell you. Like, sure, there's wondrous things in this world. God made this world. It is beautiful because he said so. It is good because he said so. But it's still broken because sin exists here. There are refugees all over from – they're from Syria, South Sudan, Guatemala, and plenty of other nations – there's plenty of homeless in our streets. The minute there are men and women out there that are struggling with their sexual identities and thoughts. And there's the woman out there thinking that she has no way out of her situation but to abort her child, uh, amongst plenty of other examples I could offer. It, like There are a ton of people who will speak up in their defense, but if that's all they do, then they're worthless to the cause. Uh, more than likely, because they want to be seen as righteous and moral uh, for the sake of virtue signaling. It's like, hey, uh, look at me. I'm saying it's like, hey, guys, you should you should donate to Soup Kitchen. Uh, you should, uh, I don't know, here's this new cancer uh, thing you can give money to. Yep, I'm giving the money. I'm doing good things. And their heart is nowhere near that. Sometimes they don't even give the money. They just say they do because it looks better for them to do that. We should never be like that. Look, once again, I think I've said this before. We will never be able to look after all these people by ourselves. Those are just four examples. There's plenty of worse examples out there. But what what blah, what you and I can do is use what resources we have to see what they have, what they need, whether it be something like they need. They need safety. They need somewhere where they don't have to look over their shoulder. It could be they need money. Say, hey, I can't afford food. Or it could just be someone to talk to. Do you know how simple that is? <laughs> As an introvert, it irks me that that's a thing that exists. But That's sometimes what God calls me to do is just talk to someone because they need someone to listen to what they have to say. And you can argue all day, well, that's not as important as giving money to something or blah, blah, blah. Look, look, you don't know that. You God now? Sometimes that's what they need is just someone to talk to or someone they can talk to who knows where they can get money or safety or shelter or food or what have you. Jesus, at this moment in time, knew these leprous beggars needed help. And he walked down this road specifically so that he could meet them where they were. Follow his example. You, Christian, we need to follow his example. He did not neglect them. He came looking for them. Also notice here that even though 10 men were healed, only one of them came back to worship God correctly. Jesus commanded them, go to the temple. That was the law. Like, hey, if you were ever, leprosy ever left your body, there were special things you had to go through uh, for the priests to go, okay, you're good. You can go back into proper society. Look, but that's not what happens in this moment outside of they do these things. 
but they don't praise God, which is what they're supposed to be doing for what he's healed them of. Like the other nine men more than likely did this just looking for, you know, that one magic trick that would enable them to get back into polite society and live among regular people again, which there's nothing inherently wrong with that idea. Like we want to be around people. We don't want to be sick. We don't want to be the point where we have to be quarantined from everyone else because there's a, a fear of spreading that disease around us and causing harm. But they miss the point. This Samaritan man shamed his Jewish brethren by not only worshiping God, but coming back to thank Jesus for what he did, recognizing that only someone with God's authority could have healed him, which Jesus praises him for and mocks the Jewish people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, what they should have done in recognition of his act. So too, and it's a hard pill to swallow, so too will we find people that we aid sometimes who take what they can get from us and only return when they're in need again. It's a fact of life. Not every person who seeks help is going to join a church, is going to be thankful for what you've done. That's okay. This does not mean that we force everyone who enters, like, say, a soup kitchen to then, like, oh, well, if you want your food, here's some scripture to recite and make sure you remember it next week, too. And then you can be uh, fed there, buddy. It's like, no, anything like that scenario, we're doing things for the improper reasons. The point is to go after the lost, to go after the disenfranchised and help them. If they come to faith, great. But at the end of the day, God said to take care of the widow and the orphan, to those who had nothing. He didn't say uh, take care of them and uh, force them to be in a pew of Sunday morning or force them to gather chairs in that school you're meeting in or what have you. No, what it means is that we serve them anyways. Even when they take advantage of the situation, for all we know, we're planting the seeds that lead them to recognize that their way of doing things is only hurting them. And maybe one day they'll see the light of Christ in us and want to have it themselves. It's that simple. It's even more simple. This may never happen. Regardless, like Jesus, we don't help others for the sake of them seeking salvation. It's a great, it's, it's a heck of a boon. Uh, a heck of a perk if you do that, because guess what? You're secured for eternity. But that's not why we do it. We help them because it is good and righteous to do so. Even if only 10% of the people we aid ever thank us for our efforts and repent of their sins. Remember, we're not supposed to be seeking praise and adulation. Uh, adulation. Uh, we're not supposed to. Let, let, let me get an example here. I had to look this up. Okay, so the population right now of the United States of America is currently 333,287,557 people strong. Over 300 million people live in this country alone, meaning that if only 10% of those rep uh, repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, the United States alone in the world would have 33,328,000 756 new believers. I'm not a mathematician, but I'll take those numbers any day over what we normally see for conversion rates. Assuming, of course, that I did my math right, <laughs> which you should always double check whenever I make such a claim just for your benefit and mine. But you see my point. 33 million people, 10% just in America. Imagine the world. I did not do those numbers, so I will not give you the numbers. <laughs> I think we're over 8 billion people now. It would be what, like 800 million maybe? Thereabouts? Stop. I, I use numbers to get you to stop thinking about numbers. <laughs> it's my point. It, 
It doesn't matter if only 10% come back. The point is we were faithful. The point is we looked after someone else. And when the time comes and they're up before God and he says, well, what have you done? Why have you not repented of your sins? They can't say, well, oh, no one gave me an example to live up to because we did. There is no excuse in the face of that. And we'll finish off today by going through verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Sorry, I lost my place there. (laughs) Uh, They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. A lot of stuff being said in this one. Let's start with the Pharisees, uh, our best friends. They were demanding, once again, to be given physical and cosmological signs that the kingdom of heaven was approaching. Once again, they were dominated only by what they could see and experience logically, rather than seeing the spiritual kingdom that was being formed right in front of their very eyes. Jesus calls them out. Again, they cannot see that spiritual veil is over their eyes. His kingdom is being established as they're speaking. People are coming to faith. People are joining up in his name calling out his name and righteousness for the good things that he's done and will continue to do. But they can't see it because, one, they don't want to because it's not what they think should happen, and two, because God isn't allowing them to. Those things don't contradict each other. God honors our choices and decisions. So Jesus mocks them by saying, oh, you're asking for a sign. You want these wonders to happen, but you can't see it because you won't let you won't want to. It means that you are right and I am wrong and there have to be changes made in your life. We'll move on from there. Here we start getting into some more end times discussions. It's been mentioned a little before, but like this is when things start ramping up a little bit. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture is like end time stuff. It's just always fascinated me. Uh, I've always wanted to see like, oh, well, where's the rapture happening? Or like, uh, who's going to be the beast and all this stuff? It's like, yeah, those things are good, but like, are they the healthiest thing in the world? Sometimes not. But we still need to learn this, even knowing we're never going to get answers that we want. These parts of scripture are easily misquoted and put out of context 
like for whatever new, you know, rapture fad is rising up in the church or, you know, this is the actual seven day, excuse me, seven years of tribulation. Uh, you watch out for, you know, 20, 20, whenever this is exactly when things are going to happen. It's like, no, no one knows exactly uh, when the end of the world will arrive. And if they say they do run away from them, let me make this clear. I am not here to tell you the earth is ending on 2257, uh, May 11th at 930 in the morning. Uh, uh, people have made worse claims than that. People have made claims within the same year that the world is ending. And time and time again, they were proven false. And if we were living under the old law, uh, they would have been stoned to death for being false prophets, which honestly, in some of these cases, I would be in favor of. But it's a good thing I'm not in charge. And it's a good thing that Jesus is love and he's commanded us not to do such things. I have to fight myself despite that. Look, at best, we can only interpret scripture to our own abilities and strengths. I'm going to come at it from a different way than you are. It's just how it is when it comes to interpreting these things versus something like, you know, I'm the way to truth and life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't really argue against that. You can, but I mean, you're on the winning, you can be the losing side if you attempt to. Uh, it's game set match. But we just hope that as we look at this, we find some semblance of the truth of what is to come in our words. Like I said earlier, like I love studying stuff like this. It's all very, very fascinating, but I will never have a concrete answer for, I mean, the majority of this, I should say, because Jesus intentionally veiled most of this prophecy and metaphors and imagery that we have very little context for, especially when you get into Revelation proper which would be years for us, <laughs> there's going to be some things brought up there that are completely wacky. Yet it's Bible. Yet it's truth. What does it mean? Who knows? This is by design. We are not supposed to fret over how exactly things are going to go. We're not supposed to, well, uh, of course it's going to be happening this year and this place. So no, the point is it's going to be a surprise. But it shouldn't be a surprise to the point where we aren't prepared. The purposes of these passages, of passages like this, they are to show that these events will occur and not for when and how they occur. It's not for, they're not to show that when will they occur or how they occur. You hear that? The when or how or the, the who, what, why and uh, what and all that. We don't know. We can just guess. Okay. We all good? Good. Let's continue. These verses in particular are an example of near and far prophecy. This is sometimes also known as dual fulfillment prof uh, prophecy. Prophecy. Is that a stutter coming in there? I prefer near and far prophecy. Uh, I think the more academic way of saying it is dual fulfillment prophecy. Uh, this just means they serve a dual purpose. Uh, to speak of events that are about to occur when a prophecy is made and to events that will happen later. Like uh, an example someone give would be Isaiah uh, 7, one, uh, excuse me, 7, 1, 14, 7, 14, where he speaks of a virgin being born, uh, excuse me, a virgin giving birth to a child. Uh, some people take this to mean that that is happening in the days of Ahaz, uh, a child being born of a virgin in that age, but also to Mary giving birth to Jesus uh, without a father. That would be an example some would give. Another would be verses like this, where Jesus speaks of what is about to occur in the Jewish, uh, the great Jewish revolt uh, from like 66, 67 to 73 AD, uh, a very rough time in 
a history for the Jewish people. But then again, unfortunately, that's been most of history. But like especially so at this point, they're about to get crushed by Rome, completely under their heel to the point where even like uh, about 70 some years later in the Bar Kobo revolt, like that's the last time they ever rise up against Rome. And they're getting thrown out of their home just like with Babylon when they took over. Like this near and far prophecy is talking of the end of days, but also the time these Christians, some of whom will still be alive when this happens, it's only 30, 30 some years later, so that they know, oh, Jesus was warning us about this stuff, so we should get the heck out of Dodge and not be around all the fighting. That's a very practical bit of advice, but it also has future repercussions beyond that moment in time to the end of days. Like Christians at the time, they would have seen that Jesus was warning them to prepare for what was about to happen. Like I said, because they're going to be living in days where they're going to suffer thanks to the war and the strife it brings. That's what war does. It's unfortunate. It's reality. So Jesus was preparing them for that reality so that when it happened, they could just leave. They could run away from the violence and be safe because he loved them. So too, will it be for those of us who are around for the days of the final judgments, depending on how you interpret scripture that talks about whether or not true believers will still be around in their area or not. That, that's, there's a lot I can go to there. There are some people who think at yeah, the moment uh, Jesus comes back, that's when the seven years starts and we're going to be raptured away. And there may be some people left behind. Uh, oh gosh, I hate that phrase so much. Um, I hate those books so much too. <laughs> I should keep that on, you know, keep it in Joshua. Um, so the people that are still going to be there after we're gone in this scenario, if Christians are being taken in the beginning of the tribulation period, the beginning of the seven years that eventually become the faith uh, based off of, oh, they're not going to take the mark of the beast. They're going to uh, follow Jesus faithfully and they're going to live until uh, whatever part of the seven year period is up and then reign on earth with him. It, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, we can get to more in depth there, you know, 20 years down the road when we get to Revelation. <laughs> but I say all that to say, like, either way, we should be prepared because it's going to happen. Even if we're not around for the tribulation period for that whole seven years that's slotted off, like most scholars would say, that's gonna, that it's going to be a period of seven years. It's still good advice to be wary of people who pretend to be Jesus or who say that they have all the answers that have nothing to do with what God says. I mean, we just had uh, on the whole church uh, podcast, uh, a discussion on cults. Uh, that's actually going to be releasing, uh, I think like two days after this is, if I have my schedules correct, but it's so easy for people to run away. There are so many cults out there that have bits of the truth in them that will bring up the Bible and people follow them thinking, this is where Jesus wants me. And some of them, step out, they think, in faith to do so. And Jesus is warning exactly against that. It's going to happen because it keeps happening. That How many cults are there in the world that are not Christian-based? A ton. How many are there that are Christian-based? More than zero, which is what it should be. It's astounding. And people keep falling for it because they're not prepared or they're not being prepared by the people who are supposed to be doing their jobs and teaching them the truth. So they're easily led astray when the first new thing uh, comes their way. Look, the main point that Jesus is making here, besides all that, is that if we get caught unprepared for what he warned us about, we have no one to blame but ourselves. 
It's as simple as that. Like God is loving. God is merciful. But God is also a God who delivers judgment and wrath and allows us to deal with the choices and repercussions of our actions. It's plain and simple. If we're not prepared, it's going to be worse in a time that's already bad. He, he gives us examples, too, of Noah. Noah spent many years building the ark. We don't know how many. Some people think this is as much as 120. Some people say about 95, depending on like the, the birth schedule of his sons and stuff like that. Uh, like I said, I'm not a numbers guy, so it, it's a long time either way. The point is there was a giant boat being built in the middle of land, landlocked land, you know, as far away from the ocean as you can get sometimes. And people, if, even if they asked, no one came with Noah except for his entire family. That's, let's see, is that eight people? Thereabouts? Yeah. Noah, his sons, his wife, their wives. It's about eight people, assuming they had no, no children at that time. Eight people, possibly plus, versus the entire population of the world. And they had no one to blame but themselves because they knew that boat was there. Stories would travel. It's like, hey, you bet this crazy guy is building the boat. Why? Because there's going to be water falling down from the sky. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. And then they move on with their lives. Then he gives, Jesus gives the example of Lot. Lot while not the most righteous person in the world, let's make that clear, is still righteous enough for God to save him and his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah, who, by the way, these cities, along with the other three cities, uh, five total, had plenty of time to walk away from their sins, seeing him act differently than them around them. That should be a sign. That's something weird about that guy. What is that? Well, it's because of his faith in God. Yet, at the end of the day, out of those five cities, one remain. That's it. Zoar. Lot's wife, also, Jesus gives an example here. He says, specifically, remember Lot's wife. Knew safety was in front of her if she kept going forward, yet she still looked back to the debaucherous city she lived in, causing her to be cursed and to, to become a pillar of salt for her dependence on her own way instead of God's. Now, for those of you who hadn't read your Genesis, that's exactly what happens. We can't look back to where we were in that sin, thinking, oh, that's better for me. When God is just right ahead of us, calling our name, saying, come after me. We can't do that. Jesus gives these examples of people who know better. She knew God was bringing her to safety, but she looked back anyways, because there was just that little bit of, oh, but I want to be where I was before. And there's punishment for that. It's not a happy thought. <laughs> it's, it's Bible. Can't really argue against it. If I could, if I did, I'd be on the wrong side of history. So last part here. When Jesus returns for the second time, whenever the heck that is, once again, no one knows. If they say they know, run away. But when he returns for the second time, the world as we know it will be over. And that is a good thing. If we are prepared for it and have repented of our sins to turn to him. To those who haven't, there will be nothing good waiting for them. All they will see are vultures gathering around because people are dying. And that's a sign. Jesus offers of, look, I did everything I was, supposed to, I was supposed to do. I told you the truth. You had people in your life who told you the truth. You walked away, and that's it. So another, another fun way to end a chapter here in the book of Luke. So thank you all for listening uh, to this point, for dealing with me, stumbling over my words and the like. I really appreciate that. Uh, please, if you have the time, go ahead and leave a five-star review to help boost this on uh your podcasting platform of choice just to reach more people, uh, continue engaging. If you keep retweeting some of my stuff, I really appreciate that. If you want to follow us on Twitter, that's uh, let nothing move you podcast. 
at, at nothing let is yeah that's the app you can also follow me on twitter if you're to the more anime manga and comics things i'm at nkscf2 for that uh if you're interested in my fiction writing you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on amazon by searching for the name mc ashley still not at the top of the list yet that's okay if you're just searching for that also if you'll be in the matthews north carolina area around uh july 15th on this, not around on the day of July 15th, I should say. Uh, I'll be there along with my fellow Systematic Ecology hosts. We're going to be hosting a uh, just a way to enjoy the summer called, it's called the Summer Fun Slum Time of. Uh, <laughs> Joshua, you can keep this in too. I don't care. Let, let the people hear me stumble over my words. Uh, I'm not a good promoter here, am I? The Summer Fun Slime Time event where we'll be having a one day kind of. Uh, essentially an adult VBS event from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. on that Saturday, July 15th. This is where you can see us. We'll be live recording some episodes, uh, especially for uh, Systematic Geekology there. Uh, We'll be doing one. I believe I'll be hosting that one if I'm remembering correctly. This will be on a discussion on, you know, demons in fiction and how we think that they're handled there and stuff like that. You can also say there's a geeky trivia competition later on in the day. We'll be having some devotions and stuff like that. So we'd really like you all to join. If you can, that is once again in Matthews, North Carolina on July 15th, the Summer Fun Slime Time event. Also as well, if you're interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then go ahead and check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. Contact us at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd also like to extend, as always, a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast and for putting up to hearing my voice more often than he probably cares for. (laughs) And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.